On this episode of the Hyperfast Agent Podcast, we are joined by Valerie Garcia from Realvolve. Listen in as Valerie speaks at the Hyperfast Sales Summit. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Hyperfast Show, where we believe unlimited growth in business and life is created by surrounding yourself with people who have been where you are going. Learning from others allows you to compress time and grow hyperfast. And now, here are your hosts, Kerry Shaw and Dan Lesniak. Kerry and Dan are real estate developers, best-selling authors, billion-dollar agents, and million-dollar agent makers. And now, get ready to grow hyperfast. All right. So to end your day today, we're going to talk about thinking like a startup. I know that most of you in this room and on this call are far from being startups at this point. But if we can think all the way back to where we very began in our, in our industry, in our career, with our goals, a lot of us will find that some of those things that really got us where we are today are some of the things that we have to cling to no matter how far we get and what goals we achieve. That's what I want to talk to you about today. So I want to introduce you to Joe and Nathan and Brian. Some of you may know who these dudes are. If you don't, it's okay. But about 13 years ago, these guys were scrappy entrepreneurs living in an apartment in San Francisco, and they were not going to make rent. (laughs) So they did what any scrappy 20-year-old something dudes would do in San Francisco, They said, what if we put an air mattress on the floor and charged people 80 bucks a night to sleep in it and uh, we'll give them some breakfast, right? So it was a crazy idea, but they did it and they made rent. They thought we have something here and they decided to throw everything into this idea. They weren't looking to disrupt hotels. They were simply looking to make a buck. And over the next couple of months, the idea kind of took off. They got to the point where they had investors that were interested in them, but the investors said to them, guys, we're not going to invest unless you clear your debt. They're about 20 grand in credit card debt at this point. And so they thought, we need to do something really quickly to get out of debt. So they did what any 20-something-year-old guys would do. They went to Costco. They bought a bunch of cereal. They printed some cereal boxes off the internet and they sold them for 40 bucks a pop. And in 24 hours, they sold a thousand of these. They're still collector's items. If you have one, I want one, (laughs) let me know. They cleared their debt, their investors were impressed. They came on board and a little thing known as Airbnb was born. Now, it was a pretty good gamble, right? We can look back and think it was kind of a crazy idea that they had and it took off. Later, when someone wrote their story, this was the quote that stood out to me. Just because you have a crazy idea doesn't mean you are crazy. The good measuring stick here is whether or not your crazy idea makes money or changes the world. And in this case, I think we can all agree that it's made money and changed the world at least a little bit. Now, this guy, if he was still alive, could probably tell you a little bit about that, crazy ideas and changing the world. For those of you that went to public school here in the United States, you probably did not learn about George Cayley. You probably learned about the Wright brothers, right? Yep, the Wright brothers who invented the airplane. They didn't. The Wright brothers came along 100 years after George Cayley, and they ripped off his idea. He's actually the guy who invented the very first flying machine. But we don't learn about him because his son, 
had had him committed to an insane asylum because they thought he was nuts for thinking man could fly. <laughs> you remember these? Please tell me you remember these, all right? Back in the 80s, these were the thing. This was the technology du jour in the early 80s. Now, back when these came out, they were super expensive. The machines that played them were very expensive. But I will also tell you that there were really only two kinds of videos that came out on these when they, uh, when they were new. There were blockbusters, the things that had come out of the movie theater, and you wanted to rent them so you could watch it again. And they were what we'll call adult films. Those were the two kinds of videos that you would watch on VHS tapes back then. They were pretty expensive to make. They were very expensive to sell. Now, right about the time that VHS tapes were sort of hot, there was this person. Some of you may recognize her. In 1982, she was 45 years old. She had two Tony Award noms. She was a seven-time Academy Award nominee. She had two Best Actress Oscars, and she was a primetime Emmy winner. She had it made. She really wasn't even in it for the money anymore at this point. She was at the top of her career. And one day when she was on set, she fell and she broke her leg. So she had to leave set and for the next several months, she was in physiotherapy. She was getting you know, the muscles to work again and all of the pieces to work again. And during that time, somebody came to her and said, hey, we think that you should make VHS tapes. And she said, I'm not that kind of girl. And they said, no, no, no. Just bear with me here. We think that you should make VHS tapes around the idea of your physiotherapy. She thought about it, she did it, and she ended up in a, in a day and age where VHS tapes were selling for about $65 a pop, selling 17 million copies of Jane Fonda's workout. Single-handedly building the sort of digital workout industry still the highest selling VHS of all time. <laughs> One of the things that she said was this, if the career you have chosen has some unexpected inconvenience, console yourself by reflecting that no career is without them. I would ask all of you in this room today, has your career ever had some unexpected inconvenience? Probably, most of us would say yes this whole year, right? And yet here we are, continuing on. Speaking of the early 80s, in the early 80s, this is what computers looked like. You remember these? They were heavy. They had terrible battery life. They were about 15 pounds. They had to be plugged in. You were not carrying them around by any means. There wasn't a whole lot you could do on them, right, other than sort of word processing. And so it stands to reason that the New York Times in December of 1985 published an article that said this. On the whole, people don't want to lug a computer with them to the beach or on a train to while away the hours that they would rather spend reading the newspaper. Somehow, the computer industry has assumed that everyone would love to have a keyboard grafted on as an extension of their fingers, and it is just not so. And yet, here we are today. Every one of us has a keyboard grafted on as an extension of our fingers. See, that was a very fair assumption in 1985. But just a few years later, everything changed. The Apple became a thing, and we never looked back. How many of you downloaded this app? Not one of you. I can be sure of that. 
couple of guys several years ago decided that everyone was gonna love having an app where they could upload pictures of their drinks, their bourbon, their whiskey, their scotch. It's definitely a money-making idea. And yet no one downloaded it and no one used it. But one of those guys on the side decided to launch another photo sharing app at the same time as a pet project for people to upload pictures of other things. And you guessed it, 25,000 people signed up for that one on day one. They had over 800 million monthly users when they sold to Facebook for a billion dollars. Instagram, right? I love this quote when we're thinking about crazy ideas. Finding out what people actually want can mean changing course, can mean looking from the outside like you don't know what you're doing. But we forget that even the most successful companies were run by people just chasing the best ideas they could find, no matter what it looked like from the outside. I love the idea that sometimes in order to be successful, we have to look a little bit nuts. And each and every one of those stories that I've told you so far, subscribe to that idea. And so did this guy. Steve Jobs' number one saying over and over again until the day he died was, stay hungry, stay foolish. He said that entrepreneurs, people who create things, people who run businesses have to be hungry. Otherwise you won't get up in the morning and you have to be a little bit crazy. I think we can all agree that the day he decided to take the uh, headphone jack out of the phone, we all thought he was a little bit crazy. But if we go back even further than that, if we remember the day that we all had our very first you know, digital music device, whichever company made it. If we look back and think about the fact that when the iPod came out, we all had flip phones. And flip phones were fine because that's all we'd ever known. And so when Steve Jobs said, hey, I'm going to take the iPod and I'm going to take the flip phone and I'm going to put them together so that your music is on your phone, people said, you're insane. Nobody wants that. In fact, there was a whole article written that's still live on the internet today about why the Apple phone will fail and fail badly. And it didn't, did it? Most of us have had a number of versions of those. And that article came out 12 years, 23 iPhone versions, and two and a half billion devices ago. See, we all have to be a little bit hungry and we all have to be a little bit crazy. Which leads me to this quote. Really good friend of mine, a great Canadian marketing genius, said this on stage two years ago. He got up and he said, disruptors solve the problem the establishment can't or won't. Guess what? You are the establishment. He looked out at the audience of 5,000 entrepreneurs and he said, you are the establishment. And there was this really long pause. I started to realize, you know, we've been talking a lot about disruption over the last decade. If you've gone to any real estate events or pretty much any conference in the world, disruptor or disruption could be a really good drinking game. But when he looked at us and he said this, I thought, oh my God, we are. We're the establishment. We're not the disruptors. And up until then, we've been sort of painting disruptors as the bad guys. Like disruptors are the ones that, you know, are out there. We're the rest. We're the good guys. But if disruptors are solving the problem, the establishment can or won't, I don't want to be the establishment. I want to be the disruptor. I don't know about you. 
So I started looking into the word disruptor and disruption. I'm kind of a big dictionary nerd. And I looked up the definition. And the definition of disruptor is a company that changes the traditional way an industry operates in a new or more effective way. A company that changes the way the industry operates in a new and more effective way. When you hear that, doesn't that make you want to be the disruptor? Which leads me to probably the biggest lie that I have ever been taught in real estate. And it was taught to me by my very first broker 24 years ago. He looked me in the eye and he said, Val, if you want to beat your competition, you have to be better than them. And he was wrong. There wasn't very many things that Tom was wrong about over the last 24 years, but he was wrong about that. See, the truth is, is that if you want to beat your competition, you have to be different, not better. And that is the truth. And that is what startups know. So that is what really good startups subscribe to. Hungry, foolish, crazy brave enough to try something that nobody else has ever done, solving the problems that your competition can't or won't. That is what startups do. That is why we look at them and go, my gosh, you know, like who would have thought that crazy idea of an air mattress and a bowl of cereal would be a $38 billion business. And so today I want to give you a couple of ways to start thinking like a startup. I want to give you a couple of specific examples of the ways startup think, startups think and how you can do the same. So I'm going to start with this one. There is a company called Enso, E-N-S-O, and they produce a report every year called the Enso Report. And they ask Americans to grade companies, organizations, and businesses based on one thing. Not on their logo, not on their product, not on their customer service, not on how great they are as a brand. They ask Americans to vote on how great they are in terms of the good they do for the world. It's a really interesting report. They break it down and show you results by demographic and millennials and boomers. It's super fascinating to see how people answer these questions. But ultimately, they ask Does your company? create value for the world? Do they do good? It's a really interesting concept when we think about it. And if we really start looking at some of the companies and the organizations that we give our money to, we have to ask, do they do good for the world? And so every year, the last several years, this report has come out and the top 10 on this report have always been not-for-profits, as you would expect. Things like Big Brothers, Big Sisters and the World Wildlife Fund, et cetera. Brands that obviously do good for the world. But last year, when the report came out, the top 10 looked a little bit different. For the first time ever, when that report came out last year, there was a brand, a company in the top 10 that was absolutely not a not-for-profit. Any guesses as to what company that was? It was Amazon. For the first time, Voted by popular opinion, people looked at that list and said, Amazon does a lot of good for the world. Now, yes, Amazon Smiles does a lot of good for the world. But most people, when they're filling out the results of this report, are thinking, not only does this company do good for the world, but this company does a heck of a lot of good for me. And I don't know about you, but in the last year or so, I have definitely gotten my money's worth out of my Amazon Prime accounts. They have, you know, 
the patent on one-click shopping. So when we think about that, we start thinking about what is it that people decide provides value? And it's an interesting report. If you pull it up, the top 200 are very interesting, very varied. It's all over the map, everywhere from the World Wildlife Fund to the Ku Klux Klan. Interesting result in that report. And so one would think when you look at that report that people ascribe value to things like customer service. And that's another thing that we've been taught for years is that if you want to have great loyal customers, you are going to provide them with great customer service. But Harvard Business Review did a study a few years back where they found that good customer service isn't the key to loyal customers. In fact, they decided that delighting customers doesn't build loyalty at all. Reducing their effort does. In fact, people are drawn to brands now that make it easy for them, that make it simple, that remove roadblocks, that take away the pain points. And when you think about that, it makes sense that people would feel that Amazon provides great value. And so that is number one. The number one way that startups think, make it easy for them. I would challenge you to think, where can you remove roadblocks in your business, in your career? Where are the pain points for the people that you serve? How hard is it for them to contact you, to get into contact with you? I would say to most agents, like, how hard is it for me to find your phone number? Two clicks and I'm out, right? So startups make it easy. The second thing that startups do is they know their goal. They have absolutely crystal clear definition of what success looks like. I know that you guys are talking about goal setting and planning a lot during these couple of days. And it's always really easy to set goals. Write them down, it's great. But it's really difficult to do the things that we have to do to achieve those. This is the email in September of 2007 that Joe sent to Brian where he had an idea. He said, I thought of a way to make a few bucks, turning our place into designer's bed and breakfast, offering designers who come to town a place to crash, a sleeping mat, and breakfast. That was the very beginning of Airbnb. If you look at that, the goal was crystal clear from the beginning. Make a few bucks. Not make friends, not disrupt the hotel industry, not like change up the whole world. They wanted to make a few bucks. They were really clear from the very beginning. We always have to look at our goals and figure out how can we break this down into the smallest, most manageable piece and what does success look like? It's easy to set really big goals. I wanna to get to my leads faster. I wanna be more organized. I wanna have a process. I wanna streamline that contract close process. I wanna have long-term client follow-up. Talk to agents all day long, all over the world who have these really big goals and that's great. All of those are absolutely parts of your business that need to be in working order. But imagine if that's the deepest you go when it comes to your goals. If you don't break it down into what is the first step and the next step and the step after that. Hey, hold that thought for a minute. Do you want to take your real estate business to the next level? If you do, there's no reason to go it alone. Learn from people who've been where you want to go. Carrie and I have sold billions of dollars in real estate. We've netted over seven figures for seven years in a row now. And we wanna see if you would be a good fit to work for us. We don't work with a lot of people, 
but we want to give you a chance to get on a free strategy call to see if we can help you get your business to the next level. Go to hyperfastcoach.com and apply for your discovery session today. Again, that's hyperfastcoach.com. The third way that startups think is they create a repeatable process that scales. The most important thing is about the scale. Now, I grew up in a little town called Grand Rapids, Michigan. Ever been there? Yay! It is the home of Henry Ford. You've probably heard of him. Now, we're pretty proud of Henry Ford in our town. And I learned a lot about Henry Ford in school. You go to the Henry Ford Museum when you're in grade five and you learn about cars and you get to sit in a Model T. It's all very Michigan and very exciting at that age. But here's the thing that I learned about Henry Ford. When he started building automobiles, it wasn't the cool thing. Like people weren't busting down his door for cars. In fact, they were taking out attack ads in newspapers like this one that said, before you discard your horse and buy an auto, think of the cost. They go on and on and describe all of the things wrong with buying a car and how it's so much cheaper to just give your horse some hay and pat him on the back, right? And so people weren't, again, beating down his door. They weren't like, oh, a car, thank God, finally. They were saying, this is ridiculous. Why would I do this? But Henry Ford pressed on. And within a few years, he had, by 1908, he had built 12,000 automobiles by hand. His factory, by hand. They had learned a lot in those couple of years, building 12,000 cars by hand. They had learned that people will buy them if they're cheap. The goal was to get them is inexpensive as possible. And they will buy them if they don't have to wait a long time so they don't have buyer's remorse. We, we know that feeling, right? And so interesting fact, early cars were all the same color. And not because they only had to buy one kind of paint or because it was faster, but because that color paint dried the fastest. So cars were black back then because black paint dried faster than any of the other colors. And so 12,000 cars by hand. But then Henry Ford said, there has got to be a better way. I have to create a process that allows me to make these faster and cheaper. And so he created the assembly line. He invented the idea of every single person on the assembly line knowing their role, playing their part, and doing it as fast, as efficiently as possible. He reduced the amount of time that it took from 12 and a half hours to 93 minutes to build a car. 93 minutes in that day and age was amazing. And he cut the cost by two thirds. He did his homework and he realized that if people want faster and they want cheaper, he was gonna figure out a way to give it to them. But then he ran into a problem. And it's a problem that most real estate agents also run into. That's not gonna play my video. <laughs> The next slide was a video with the scene from Lucille Ball's show where she's eating the chocolates as they come down the conveyor belt. Do you remember that? If you've ever watched the entire five minute clip, it's really interesting. Starts out where you hear that they have been fired from every other job in the factory because they absolutely suck at it. And so they put them on this, this station where they're wrapping chocolates and they're told to wrap chocolates and if not a single one can get past them unwrapped. And if it does, they're fired. 
And at first the chocolates come out slowly and they're like, this is great. This is amazing. I can handle this. I'm going to keep this job, right? But then as the clip goes on, chocolates come faster and faster and faster until they're shoving them down their shirt and in their hat and in their pockets and in their mouth. And then at the very end, the supervisor comes out, sees there's no chocolates there and says, good job, speed it up, right? This is the problem we run into a lot in our business is that we've got repeatable processes and we're like, this is great, I'm on it. But then the process speeds up. The clients come, the leads come, life happens. And all of a sudden we find that we're like frantically trying to keep up. So it's not enough to create repeatable processes. We have to figure out how we can repeat, create those in a way that scales. The fourth way that startups think is they have a culture of customer service. Not just an idea, not just a goal, but a culture. I love talking about culture. It's one of my favorite things. I do a whole class for people on culture. And I always say the culture of any organization is the very worst behavior that you're willing to tolerate. And it's true. The startups have a culture of customer service. The very best ones do. You may have heard of this company, Zappos. They were known for their customer service. In fact, legendary in marketing circles. In the day, you could go to any conference where Tony Shea of Zappos was speaking and you could ask him to tell you the pizza story. And it was actually pretty magical to sit in a room with Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, and listen to him tell you this story. As the story goes, he and a couple of buddies were in a city thousands of miles away from the headquarters of Zappos. And they were out drinking. And his buddy said, it's late, I'm hungry, where can I get a pizza? And Tony said, I don't know, call my help desk. And the guys laughed and he said, no, really, call the help desk. They'll tell you where to get a pizza. So the guy dials up the Zappos help desk. And sure enough, someone answers the phone, middle of the night, how can I help you? Yeah, I'm out with Tony, we're looking for pizza. And the lady said, just a minute. Types a few things in. Here's the two pizza places closest to you that are open at this time of night. See, the thing is, Zappos had this policy that you always helped the customer no matter what. And it served them well. A couple of years into their business, Zappos actually picked up their entire organization and moved it from West Coast to Vegas. They had 90 employees at the time. They sat them all down in a room one day and they said, hey, we have some news for you. We're struggling to find people to work as customer service reps because the Bay Area is so expensive, but we need to grow. So we need to move somewhere else. And we're asking you to have some trust in us and move with us. And 75 of those 90 employees picked up, moved their homes and their families to Vegas to continue to work for Zappos. To this day, you can go and visit their factory. They like to tell the story of how they hire when you go to Zappos for your job interview, you get into a shuttle at a lot far away from the building and you take the shuttle into the building and back. And no matter how good your interview goes, if you don't talk to the shuttle driver, they do not hire you. In fact, once you are hired at Zappos, once you've been there a month, they bring you into a room, sit you down and say, we'll give you $3,000 cash to quit right now. Because they figure if you're willing to quit for $3,000 cash after a month, you should go. They have a very interesting culture. But most importantly, they say this. We are a customer service company that just happens to sell shoes. 
I always challenge people to think about that. Imagine if you were a customer service company that just happens to facilitate the buy, buying and selling of real estate. When I was very early on in my career, I did a stint as a help desk girl for IBM. It was very educational. I always say that everyone should have three jobs growing up. You should be a nanny, you should work for a help desk, and you should wash dishes. My time at IBM was very interesting, but I learned this very important lesson. One time I was on the phone with a customer and I said, tell me about the problem you're having, to which they said, let's get this clear. This is a problem you're having. And that has shaped the way that I've run my career ever since. Let's get this clear. This is a problem you're having. I learned that what startups do is they own the problem. And I've learned to own the problem with my clients ever since. We do in what you're looking at, we do a exercise called painstorming, not brainstorming, painstorming. Actually sit down as a group regularly and figure out what are all the pain points that our customers experience. Our buyers, our sellers, our renters, our investors, every single one of them, what do they experience throughout the transaction that's painful? Where do they run up against roadblocks? Where do they have questions? Why do they ask those questions over and over? What don't they understand? Are they asking questions like, what's a deposit versus a, down versus a down payment? Can't I just Venmo you the money, right? And we laugh, but these are real questions. And these are real pain points. And once we sit down and do this painstorming exercise and we have hundreds of pain points, we can then divide them up and say, this is a blog post, this is a video, this is a class, this is a seminar, this is a, a marketing piece. We start to understand now that instead of saying to our clients, tell us about the problems you're having, we can say, I understand this is a problem I'm having and I've taken it on and I'm going to own it. And that's what startups do really, really well. The fifth thing that startups do well is they measure everything, even the weird stuff. Now, I was taught early on to just, you know, measure what you're willing to change. And I've used that quote a million times. But the reality is, is that startups measure everything, even the crazy stuff. There's a company called Shortstack. And like most startups full of millennials, they have this very, you know, open plan office, sort of a loft style. And they brought in a bunch of like foosball games and Pac-Man. And one of the things that they found early on was that some of the founders were worried that these foosball games and these Pac-Man games were going to like keep people from doing their work. They were worried when they saw people out there spending a lot of time playing Pac-Man. And so one of their data scientists said, you know what, let's measure it. Let's measure the people that spend time playing Pac-Man and let's look at their workload. And what they found, which was really crazy and very interesting, is that people actually played with the games more when they were more productive. When they were feeling free, to spend that time and that energy on something fun. And they found that when they needed to worry was when no one was playing Pac-Man. And one of my favorite quotes from Jim, the founder at Shortstack, he said this, every business is different, but the key is to look at your business and decide what the most meaningful indicators are for you. What I love about startups is they don't worry about what everyone else is measuring. They don't worry about what everyone else is doing. They look at what the most meaningful indicators are for them. 
And this is a definitely a lesson that we can apply in our own business. Number six, startups are prepared to pivot. Maybe one of the most important lessons there is. And I heard a rumor that pivot is a big word for y'all this year. Startups are prepared to pivot, not just expecting, not just willing, not just able, but prepared. And the ones that aren't prepared are the ones that see disaster. I'll give you an example. This is Adam and Miguel. You've definitely heard their story. Early on, Adam had a marketing degree and he was doing absolutely what was not his dream job. He was working for a company that designed clothing for Instagram influencers' children. That's a job, apparently, that I was not made aware of in high school. But his whole, uh, his whole job in marketing was to create um, little outfits for influencers' children who wanted to be influencers themselves. Beautiful but weird. Anyway, um, not what he went to school for, not what he wanted to do. But anyway, the, the company that he was working for needed some more space. So we went to Miguel, his real estate agent friend, and he said, dude, hook me up with some more commercial space in New York City, but it has to be cheap. And his friend laughed as you would and said, that's not the case. And so, you know, Adam decided, let's do something crazy. Like, let's maybe just like share a space with somebody. Let's go in and like share a commercial space so that we all get what we need. We need space and we need it to be inexpensive. Well, he did that and an idea was born and the idea grew. And you've all heard of this idea at this point. It became WeWork. They expanded to over 500 locations. They had over 5,000 employees. $45 billion valuation valued the most, second most valuable startup behind Uber in the United States. Second most valuable startup. Like that's, that's, they're doing okay, right? And yet, what happened? We got a little bit greedy. We got a little bit not cautious. They made a few decisions that weren't so great. They decided that they were pretty untouchable. We've all seen the headlines. And it's basically been, you know, taken over by SoftBank and the dream is over for them. And it's okay. Adam's moved on to real estate at this point. So, but what's interesting about this is this. One of my favorite quotes ever. When writing about the debacle that was WeWork, William Pollard said this, learning and innovation go hand in hand. The arrogance of success is to think that what you did yesterday will be sufficient for tomorrow. The arrogance of success is to think that what you did yesterday will be sufficient for tomorrow. Good startups, wise startups are prepared to pivot because they know that just because it worked before doesn't mean that it's going to work again. And this is, again, one of the most important lessons that we can apply to our industry, to our careers, that just because it's what we've always done or that it worked before doesn't mean that it's what is going to work tomorrow. So we have to be prepared to pivot. Number seven, the last one that I want to share with you today is this. Startups use the right tools. Startups don't necessarily always start their crazy ideas by knowing where they're going, even though they have a goal. They may not know exactly how they're going to get there, but they use the right tools. Now, we all run up against this in our industry all the time. There are a million tools. There's a million options. 
There's a million price points. Everybody's using something different. The number one question asked on the internet is what's the best CRM? Because everyone's always jumping back and forth. But the reality is, is that at the end of the day, we have to make some decisions. We have to not only know what success looks like, but we have to be prepared to pivot, make changes. But the most important thing is, is that we are prepared to automate what we shouldn't be doing so we can spend time doing what we should be doing. We've got to take the stuff that we need to do and make sure that we're free to do the stuff that we're really, really good at. And I think that's the biggest pivot we have to make in this industry is how do we make sure that we're freeing up our time to do the things that we should be doing? We should be getting face-to-face -face with our people. So as I wrap up for you here today, I'm gonna to give you a bit of a recap. If you're gonna think like a startup, you've gotta remove the roadblocks. You've gotta make it easy for them. Remembering it's not necessarily great customer service that creates loyal customers. It's making it easier for them. You have to be really clear on what your goal is. Got to break it down to the smallest, most actionable pieces. You have to create repeatable experiences and processes that scale. So even as the chocolates come faster down the conveyor belt, you can continue to succeed. You've got to create a culture of customer service, making sure that you remember that you're owning the problem. Just to be clear, this is a problem we're having. You've got to measure everything even the weird stuff. But don't necessarily always measure yourself against the person you're standing next to. Be prepared to pivot, not just ready, but prepared. And lastly, use the right tools. Before I wrap up today, I just wanna not only thank you for having me, but let you know I represent a company called Realvolve and Firepoints. We are a CRM and we do three things. We figure out how to help you take your marketing, your operations, and your relationships, those three most important pillars of your business. And we wanna help you get organized, communicate more commonly with your people, and complete your tasks. And so if you are thinking of making a change, or if you are looking for a great CRM, or if you just need a repeatable process that scales in your business, we offer tools that do all of these things for you. And we've got some special pricing for hyperfast agents today. So you can find that at realvolve.com slash hyperfast. And we're here to help. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Hyperfast Show. Subscribe to us if you want to make sure you get the latest and greatest Hyperfast shows. And remember, we love reviews. Reviews help us bring better and better guests, improve our shows, and give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time.